Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. In this episode, we're talking all things hazing, and we're talking with the person who I think has conducted the most important research on the topic, Dr. Aldo Chimino. Aldo is an instructor in the Department of Anthropology at UC Santa Barbara and is the only anthropologist alive today who specializes in the study of hazing. His research has appeared in the Journal of Cognition and Culture, Evolutionary Psychology, the Journal of American Studies, and Evolution and Human Behavior. Aldo's research has had a big impact on my own research into hazing, and I'm thrilled to welcome him to the podcast today. All right, Aldo, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you doing, Gentry? Man, I'm great. I, I really appreciate you joining us. I know, I know things are crazy out there. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Aldo lives in Seattle, which is kind of ground zero right now for the coronavirus epidemic. You, you doing okay? Yeah, doing fine at the moment, thankfully, trying to stay fine. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, start off by telling us just a little bit about your academic background uh, and in particular, how it is you decided to make hazing the focal point of your research? So, yeah, I was uh, trained in an interdisciplinary uh, master's and PhD program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, that uh, focuses on combining anthropological and psychological approaches to human behavior. So consequently, uh, the kind of work that I do is a combination of traditional psychological experimentation and field work with the groups that I focus on, which is college fraternities. Um, I originally got interested in hazing actually as an undergrad and uh, because my, my honors thesis was on hazing. And I, I came upon hazing because I was actually looking into cognitive dissonance. I wanted to try to understand the literature on dissonance and I wanted to try to think about whether there might be uh, ultimate evolutionary reasons why humans seem prone uh, to cognitive dissonance. Uh, in so doing, I came across uh, a fairly famous paper in social psychology by Aronson and Mills, which was published in 1959 on the effect of uh, severity of initiation on liking for a group. And to my knowledge, at least, this is the first hazing experiment that was ever conducted or at least published. And uh, when I read it, I found it to be very unsatisfying as an explanation <laughs> of, of hazing. Uh, and I had no idea why it was so famous uh, and why it had been cited so many times. They had to start uh, somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I understand, you know, the, the value of first steps. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm engaged in a lot of what I think are first steps. For those uh, of you not familiar with that study, it's, it's, it's an interesting study and basically finds out, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically found that the more embarrassing initiation you went through to join a group, on the back end, the more value you placed in your membership in that group. So a more embarrassing initiation led to, what, an overvaluation of your commitment to the organization? Does that sum it up? Yeah, roughly. I, um, so it, it, it's, it's a really weird experiment, and they were 
they wanted to control a lot of things, which is understandable. It, it is, after all, an experiment. But they were looking at comparing um, people joining uh, a, a discussion group that they had created for the purposes of this experiment. You're going to join a discussion group, and you had to either go through this mild or neutral initiation, or you went through what they took to be a severe initiation, which is uh, which involved you having to read uh, like erotica and a bunch of uh, bad words out loud to what you thought were your fellow group members. Um, and uh, their subjects were 100% women. I don't know why, and they, I don't think they ever commented on this. Uh, and, and yeah, af afterwards, they had you fill out a little survey, and you, you know, if you're a subject, you indicate you know, how much you, you like fellow group members and you know, think that the, the group is interesting and, and valuable. But you know, really importantly, for the purposes of understanding this experiment, uh, Aronson and Mills explicitly tried to make the discussion group as boring and crappy as possible, <laughs> right? So they, they, they talked about, you know, making like members of the discussion group hem and haw and just, you know, talk over themselves, just make it so inhumanly bad uh, that, that no one could possibly esteem membership in that organization. And, and the reason why they were doing this is because they wanted to create as much dissonance. Like they wanted to create the sense that you had gone through something unpleasant if you're in the, the severe initiation um, for something that is not worthwhile, like in a, in a very dramatic way. And so you might be, as you were saying, Gentry, uh, motivated to over justify your effort to, to say, well, no, th this group is wonderful. I was totally worth it, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so when, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions that we can ask about this. And it's, it's worth uh, addressing this because this is kind of the, the predominant theory of hazing and social psychology, if there is one right now. Um, but the question of whether people might over-justify the effort they put into initiations is a legitimate one. And that may be something that happens. But um, there's a separate and more important question, which is, is hazing, does it exist to create over justification? And, and when we look at the way hazing is conducted and, and the circumstances in which it happens, does it seem well designed to create that effect? And, and if you start to think about it carefully, I, I think the answer is no. Um, so the really obvious thing, first of all, is that in, in the real world, groups aren't uniformly terrible. Uh, and so if, if you're joining a group and you're going through hell for it, uh, it's often not going to be uh, this experimentally created pile of poo. Uh, it's, it, it's gonna have some positives for it. So the actual effect of over-justification is potentially going to be relatively small, especially if you're joining a high status, high value group. Uh, if, if you're getting a lot of benefits from this, this group, uh, then the group is gonna potentially be largely worthwhile. There might be some effort justification, but would it be worth all the effort that people put into uh, performing hazing? I mean, that's, that's a real, I think, open question. Uh, so I, 
there, there's a lot more that we, we could say about this original idea and, and paper. I could go on for, you know, pages and pages of, about it. But I, I just think it's a, it's a deeply unsatisfying explanation for hazing that has never had to grapple with the way hazing is actually conducted. Like it's always been this abstract, like imagine A and then you experience B and now do you feel C? rather than, is this the way people do this? Like, does this accord with reality outside the laboratory? And your research is unique in that you've really been able to embed yourself within this culture, right? So talk to us a little bit about the fraternity that you got plugged in with and and how they allowed you to observe them really in an anthropological sort of study to, to observe and really understand, I think, the way no researcher really ever has before the, the nuance of hazing by actually being able to uh, observe some of these activities. Yeah, so um, I, one component of, of my work, as I mentioned, is to do field work. So anthropological field work has different manifestations and different methodologies, but a more traditional old style anthropological fieldwork is just observation. Like you, you embed yourself with some, some group, some subculture or some society, and you try to observe the way that people go about things and try to understand things uh, as, as an outsider. Um, and I, as part of my work, uh, I really wanted to find uh, a fraternity or really multiple fraternities, ideally, that would allow me to uh, observe their secretive hazing and illegal hazing processes. <laughs> uh, so as, as you might imagine, that, that turned out to be very challenging. Sure. And uh, while I appreciate your accolade, um, there were individuals who had managed to embed themselves with uh, fraternities engaged in hazing. I, I think there's some dissertations uh, from the 60s or 70s. There's the book from the 60s too. Who wrote the book? Um, I mean, there, Lehman eventually published his dissertation as a book. That's the one I I'm think. thinking about, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, uh, but, but, I, but I think the book is just the dissertation. Right. Um, so, there's also like Milton Glenn Walker, who I think in the 60s uh, managed to convince uh, a bunch of uh, fraternities at the University of Washington or some other place that I'm forgetting to allow him at least nominal access uh, to them during Hell Week and at, at other times. Um, but it's, it's fair to say that this kind of work is very uncommon. How about that? Sure. Um, and... Uh, and, and I, I was discovering early on as a grad student why it was un uncommon, right? Like, why, like, what is the motivation for letting an outsider in and letting them, you know, observe you do things that uh, are verboten? Um, so how did I manage it uh, in, in this one group that I'm going to call Alpha? That's sort of the, the name that I've given them just because they were the first group uh, that I studied in depth. Um, I had um, I had had some minor contact with uh, 
a couple, like I think one individual from Alpha that I didn't know was in Alpha at, at the time. Like I, I didn't understand uh, that this person was in a fraternity. Um, and so uh, when I was looking for uh, fraternities to allow my presence, I think that this one guy uh, spotted me and knew of me and thought, hey, um, this this guy is legit or seems more legit and so uh yeah i managed to to talk to him some uh in in a number of contexts and uh eventually um i was able to get a kind of temporary agreement such that i would be allowed to see some of what happens and i would you know provide a a donation to the chapter to like support the the chapter. The, the, this is, by the way, how often anthropologists do field work. Like it, it's very rare that um, you know subgroups and cultures and societies are like, yes, random person, come hang out and come on us. in. Right? <laughs> yeah, they 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 want something. There there's a quid pro quo, um, and and so uh, so yeah. So I I provided. Uh, um, donations to, to the chapter. And of course I signed an agreement, you know, out, outlying the kinds of things that I could and could not share about the, the chapter and its members and so on. Um, and, uh, and eventually in the time there, I was able to convince them that they should let me see everything and all of it. Like early on, they, they wanted to uh, cut me off at a certain point in observing their their hazing process like okay you know you've seen it up up to this point but it's about to get real um so we want you the researcher to exit uh and i, ha I had to make my my case there and my my case is basically like hey any one of these guys could um right now you know just go on facebook and start revealing secrets like i'm i'm the only one who's actually contractually obligated to try to protect <laughs> you right <laughs> uh so they were like all right uh you know we'll we'll see how how things go and eventually uh they got very very accustomed to me and uh everything just proceeded apace and i was just some guy sitting around you know sitting in the corner taking notes or whatever so so based on your research you have developed what might be described certainly i would describe it as a unified theory of hazing so specifically talk to us about your uh, theory into why human beings haze. Yeah, so um, it's, it's not quite unified. Uh, I, I would say it's highly generalizable. How about that? Works um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm eventually going to try to unify a bunch of disparate theories of, of hazing, but right now I don't think... Uh, hazing theory is, is quite in a good place for that. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested in understanding hazing across cultures and time. So even though the topical focus of my work is often Greek letter societies, I am always thinking more broadly about the, the phenomenon and when I'm theorizing about hazing, I'm trying to think about what is true of hazing, not what is true of Greek letter societies or fraternities. So um, I've been investigating a theory that hazing motivation is partially a kind of anti-freerider strategy on the part of hazers. That is, 
Hazing is designed ultimately to select out less committed newcomers and to temporarily control the behavior of any remaining newcomers. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in monitoring them, in uh, ensuring labor inputs and mandating that, that they do certain things and so on. Um, and in pursuit of this idea, I've been testing uh, whether certain kinds of group benefits that would make groups more exploitable by newcomers, whether these benefits also predict more severe hazing motivation. And thus far, uh, the answer seems to be yes, at least to varying degrees. So um, let me try to summarize the nature of this evidence briefly. Uh, I've conducted experiments on uh, UCSB students, a representative sample of the United States, and uh, native Japanese students in Hokkaido. And in all of these studies, the basic setup is that subjects are asked to imagine themselves as members of a fictional group that is uh, described to them uh, in some survey, uh, computer-driven survey, and some kind of vignette. And then they, they're told to make decisions about how uh, they want to treat newcomers. And these are groups that are things like extreme sports groups, social networking clubs, hobbyist groups, and so on. These relatively small, um, sometimes tight-knit cooperative organizations. And uh, what I find is that if subjects believe that newcomers will be getting a lot of benefits early on, and these are relatively automatic benefits, that is, these are not gifts that are intentional, but they're sort of logical or obligatory outcomes of their membership, like gaining the group's prestige. Um, so if subjects believe that that will take place, um, then they want to haze newcomers more. That is, they want to create more severe inductions. They want newcomers to do more labor for the group. They want more control over newcomer behavior. Um, all the, well, I, I shouldn't say all, but many of the things that you see in real world hazing. Um, and uh, just to get back to prestige for a moment, uh, we do have some data uh, from uh, older studies that suggests, and by older I mean decades older, that does suggest that uh, more prestigious fraternities and fraternity chapters have more severe hazing practices, uh, which is the kind of thing that you would predict uh, if something like my theory is correct. And anecdotally, we see that a lot, right? I mean, I, I was, I remember very recently at a conference and was talking to a group of students from, you know, representing probably 40 different college campuses and said, you know, how many of you have had a, a fraternity chapter on your campus close in the last few years since you've been in school? And almost every hand in the room goes up. And I said, you keep your hand up if you would have described that fraternity as socially elite, socially prestigious, top tier, quote unquote, and almost every hand stayed up, right? That, that anecdotally yeah. at least, and, and I know you and I have talked a lot about studying this and, and are going to be able to do that soon with some new data that we've gathered, but, but anecdotally at least we see that, yeah, the, the top tier groups tend to be the ones who uh, are closed down for hazing the most, and you would assume that that's because they are the ones who have the most severe hazing and the most severe initiation associated with joining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there really does seem to be something there. Uh, and, uh, you know, with that said, I, I really think that, like, I, I find myself in wanting to straddle two positions. Like, they, the first one is, I think that, you know, my work has, has value and that uh, 
there are things to pursue there. Um, and but the second one is um, we have very little uh, large scale, like solid hypothesis testing experimental work on hazing. And um, we've we've got a very small number of of these studies. So we're we're all at at the beginning of a scientific understanding of hazing. Uh, so. I am looking forward to sort of climbing those proverbial stairs and trying to uh, get a fuller picture. And I don't necessarily think that the, uh, the theory that I've been working on is the whole story. So it's, it, it's, it's gonna be very challenging, especially because there just aren't a lot of researchers doing this work. So, you know, plenty of other areas of uh, social psychology or anthropology are advancing faster just because there's these large research programs and, you know, well-funded labs or, or what have you. Whereas, you know, for hazing, it's like, you know, little points of light here and there. <laughs> there's only a few of <laughs> Yeah, just, just occasionally uh, throwing, throwing out, out work. Um, so it, it, it makes it very challenging uh, to talk about hazing in the way that I want to talk about it, which is like very concrete, right? Like that we have all this knowledge and, and all this, this great scientific work, but instead we have, you know, a handful of studies um, that we can uh, consistently refer to. But to summarize automatic accrual theory groups haze in order to prevent newcomers from free riding and exploiting the benefits of the group without earning their keep in the common parlance. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd say that's, that's fair. Um, I, I, I think that it's, it's, it's challenging because I, I think that some of what's happening is indeed trying to get them to earn their keep. Um, but, but some of it is, is very much about control. And so while ultimately that, that control is about avoiding exploitation, I, I, th I think that it's, it's important to emphasize, you know, the way that, that hazing is, is implemented is not just like, all right, you know, go carry these, these buckets of water, um, go go fix things and, and clean things like that's part of it but but the other part of it is uh you should fear us to the to, to the point that you now feel intrinsically motivated to do this right. <laughs> you now you now are uh are are, are ready to work for us at, at least during this period and the thing that I think about is we've extended your research. And for those of you who are listening, who are familiar with our research into hazing motivation theory, it's really based on Aldo's research. The automatic accrual theory, the idea that we're preventing free riding from, from occurring with these newcomers is really, it's an implicit motivation, right? So when you yeah. talk to students about why they haze, that's not usually what they talk about. They usually will talk about one of these macro theories that, that are out there in the, the research that, that Aldo summarizes pretty well. They will talk about either group solidarity, right? We want to put these new members through a tough process because we want to bind them together. 
or they'll talk about commitment, right? The, the whole concept of earning it, that, that we want new members to earn their membership, to earn their letters. We don't want to just give this to them. Uh, and then there's just the, the social dominance rationale, which they also have a hard time articulating, but, but the, the closest they will often come is, well, you know, I had to go through it, right? So now that I'm on the other side, it, now I have the opportunity to make other people go through it. And it's just this cyclical, you have to do this. It reinforces the hierarchy. Uh, they're not going to use the word social dominance, but that's, that's really what it is. And so it's interesting that the implicit motivation that comes from your research and, and, and looking at it through the, the evolutionary psychology and, and anthropology lens uh, is is different from if you just sit down and ask a fraternity member or a member of a sports team that hey is this hey why do you do these things to your new members the answers are going to be different right yeah yeah so the people's implicit theories of of why they are hazing uh, accord fairly well with um, traditional academic theories of why people haze which are you know solidarity, dominance, and commitment, um, and people will offer justifications along those lines and, and explanations about what is motivating them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I think it's important to unpack those explicit conscious motivations as as I think uh, you've been working on, or or at at least people's perceptions of them. But I am. So in general, what I think uh, psychology has has taught us is that people do not have good conscious access to the reasons why they do things. So I don't understand they, my own behavior. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's it, it it's less that they think they don't understand it. Everyone thinks they understand their own behavior usually, um, but rather that. Uh, people have to reverse engineer why they wanted to do something. Um, and, and the it's, problem- It's post hoc reasoning. Right. And the, the problem with asking them why they, they did something is that um, they may be motivated to give the most socially desirable answer. Uh, and, and this is particularly an issue when we, we talk about hazing. You know, solidarity is something that I think that a lot of groups want uh, and, and they want in, in their newcomers, but it also happens to be the most socially desirable answer for hazing. Like it is, it is the answer that, that makes you practically sound beneficent. You're like, I'm just trying to make everyone feel good. I'm trying to make, just make trying us to build all brotherhood. Come, exactly. <laughs> trying to make us all come together. Uh, and and it, it's not that I disbelieve that, that people want to create unity. I am just skeptical that that is a, uh, a unique and powerful motivation for hazing. Um, and I, it, it's, it, it's, it's a challenging thing to unpack, right? But, but we, we've talked a little bit of, about this, like thought experiments where, where you have, um, you know, uh, subjects who are happen to be fraternity members and you ask them, you know, very to imagine various scenarios like 
you know, imagine that, you know, you've got this small pledge class and they all happen to be friends and uh, they've been friends for years and they work really well together, like they're already super close. So the question is in this circumstance where your entire pledge class is already super close, um, do you lower the, the, the severity of, of hazing because you've already achieved solidarity? It's already there, right? Right. Um, if, if anything, I think they might raise it. <laughs> I, I, th I think they might be like, oh, you guys, you guys think you that, think you're that, cool. Yeah, you, you think, think you're you got cool. this figured out. <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? Uh, so I, I just, I'm, uh, again, I, I'm convinced that it's true that people do want these things. That is a valuable thing to want. Lots of groups want to be cohesive. Um, I'm less convinced that it is a unique motivation for hazing itself. Well, that's, that's really consistent with Jonathan Haidt's research and, you know, the kind of the social intuitionist model that uh, judgments aren't really things that we form before we respond to things. He studies moral psychology, but I think it's very applicable here. What we have historically called, you know, Kohlbergian moral judgments are actually just post facto rationalizations of a decision that we made very intuitively and in, in an instant based on our innate psychology. And, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's really consistent to say that there's an underlying drive to make these new members do things in order to ensure that they're not free riding, but that, that intrinsic motivation doesn't come out in words when we're asked to explain why we do the things that we do. We try to explain it in a way that makes us sound better. We were teaching them something or we were building brotherhood or, or, or whatever that might be. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think there, there's definitely some of that. And I, I think that one of the, one of the things that falls out of the fact that lots of things are happening and need to happen around group entry is, is that, um, hazing motivations are moderated and filtered by subordinate motivations. So, you know, I, let's say I am a fraternity pledge educator, right? Um, and I, I do want these guys to be closer to one another, but I also feel like they should be hazed. Well, you know, maybe I'll try to make sure that this next hazing event has everyone doing things simultaneously or whatever. I'll modify the my pre-existing desire to haze and and try to manifest it in a way that that kind of accomplishes both goals right um but importantly at, at least in this implicit model um the, the the solidarity thing is an afterthought it's like oh well yeah I, I do also want that so how can i modify this like how can i change the the meal that i'm cooking so to speak uh, to have, you know, a dash of spice. Kill two birds with one stone. Right. So I, I could talk about this with you forever, but I, I do want to move along for the sake of time. Your research really critiques the way that we commonly define hazing uh, and, and, and critiques the way campuses in particular define hazing and the way that policy language uh, that, that college campuses have talk about and define hazing. Uh, and you've pre pre presented a definition that you think works better. How do you define hazing and, and why do you think your definition is better than the ones that many college campuses are currently using? Uh, so, yeah, I've, when I read uh, popular definitions of hazing on university web pages or anti-hazing organizations, uh, 
they're often focused on misleading or peripheral correlates of hazing, you know, saying that that hazing is, you know, anything abusive and humiliating and dangerous that that newcomers have to, to do and so on. Um, and there's, there's variations of these definitions. My personal favorite is anything that's asked of a new member should also be asked of a, of an active. Yeah. That's yeah. maybe <laughs> my, my favorite type of policy to pick on. Uh, <laughs> with, yeah, that, that, that doesn't seem like, like a very coherent definition or, or a good idea. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of these kinds of terms, and I, I wrote uh, a paper in 2017 about uh, the more popular uh, student visible definitions of, of hazing and why they are bad. Um, so to understand kind of why these are bad, let me just give you my definition, all right? So what I say in this paper is that hazing is non-accidental, costly aspects of group induction activities that uh, don't appear to be group relevant assessments or preparations or appear excessive in their application. So what this means then is that we have hazing whenever there is an apparent disjunction between a, a costly induction activity and what the group actually does or needs from its members. Um, so the example I often give is, you know, if you ask for uh, intense calisthenics from individuals that are uh, trying out to be firefighters or training to be firefighters, that is not hazing. That is a group relevant assessment or preparation. On the other hand, if you take intense calisthenics and you transplant them into a social fraternity, um, the, the sense in which they are assessing or preparing members for, for typical group activities becomes less obvious. And so you have a stronger case uh, that you're looking at hazing. Now, as a definition, uh, this, this identifies what it is that we are talking about. So it's not a, an, an ontological claim about the true nature of hazing. So I'm not saying that, you know, in truth, hazing has no relevance to what, what the group does. In fact, there are a lot of theories of hazing that are about hazing's cryptic relevance, how it may be relevant in this way or that way. Uh, and we, we've talked about some of that. But for when we are talking about hazing, because we have to talk about hazing somewhat pre-theoretically, because we don't quite know what it is yet, we have to demarcate the things that we are talking about. And so what we are actually talking about is these uh, non-group relevant assessments or preparations or things that appear to be such. So if, if you then go back and look at the way that other people are defining hazing, what you find is that they're really focused on uh, feeling states, like they're, this is, you know, it's anything degrading and abusing and humiliating, um, which is a really weird way to define this phenomenon. Like if these feeling states are absent, is it not hazing? Like, like if, if they don't feel humiliated, but humiliation was intended, is that hazing? Um, and also focusing on feeling states means that we are more likely to get false positives. So let me give you an example of a humiliating induction that is nonetheless not hazing. So uh, if you have a performing arts group 
some club and, and you re require people to come on stage and uh, give a, a, an impromptu performance to demonstrate that they can handle things like stage fright, uh, that they can you know, say things in an impromptu fashion and so forth, uh, they may feel humiliated. Like, uh, you know, public speaking is challenging and performing, I would say, is even more challenging. Um, but that is an induction that is generating humiliation that is not hazing. It is directly relevant to what they need from group members. So even danger it itself is a component of, of uh, many groups activities and is part of inductions. You know, athletic sports can be dangerous. You can seriously injure your, yourself. You can get concussions. And these dangers are attendant even in tryouts. So, you know, we, we can't just look at, well, this feels dangerous and scary and, and humiliating. No, that is a misleading correlate of hazing. Those things can be present in hazing, but they are not definitional. And it, it, it strikes me as you were talking that most college campuses probably have written their hazing policies and those hazing definitions with fraternities and maybe to a lesser extent sororities in mind, right? Because yeah. it's, you know, any sort of hazing you got from the performing arts troupe probably isn't going to rise to the level of putting students in harm's way. Whereas, right, what we see with fraternities and sororities, maybe the definitions are written in such a way that it's specifically designed. Well, why could they possibly need to do anything that might make someone feel humiliated or embarrassed or degraded? Right. And I, I understand, you know, wanting to, um, wanting to fall on the side of not giving anyone an, an out, like trying to cover all the, the possible bases. Um, but when you use a hazing definition like that, uh, that is, you know, one that is overbroad, you um, add fuel to the fire. Like when, when students say, hey, you know, anything can be hazing. Everything is hazing. I hear that Every, all the time. Yeah, and, and they're right, right? The, the problem is the students are right. They are right. The and way so then they say, well, your policy defined. is stupid and we're just going to do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, you are not trustworthy. You have, you know, you had an opportunity to build trust and to level with, with me. But instead, what you chose was something that would give you more administrative power over coherence itself. And I, I love your definition of hazing and I've, I've used it a lot and I've, I've written about this and, and, and when I talk to, you know, particularly new member educators on, on campuses, I say, you know, when you're looking at any activity and deciding is this something I should do in my new member process or not, you should really ask yourself two questions. And the first question is, is there a group relevant point or purpose to this activity that we can all agree is noble and, and, and positive and directly related to the group's performance or success, right? So, so getting back to your concept of group relevance, and if the answer to that question is yes, right, I can directly see any objective person could look at that and see, yeah, I can see how getting up and giving an extemporaneous speech, for example, is group relevant to the performing arts group may or may not be group relevant to another group, right? So if, if you pass sure. the first test, then you get to move on to the second test. And the second test is the activity dangerous, degrading, excessive, or illegal. And, and we could debate the second question, some of the categories there, degrading, right? Maybe, maybe not. But generally speaking, 
I've found that that definition, those two questions are a really helpful way to get students to think about the things that they're doing, why they're doing them, what it is they're trying to accomplish, uh, and then to tweak activities or to come up with activities that can satisfy both of those questions. And I, obviously, it's not, it's not foolproof, but I, I found that students who really stop and think about what it is we're trying to accomplish and are given that framework actually are happy to work within it. And, and the example I always share, and this, this goes back to these overbroad hazing definitions, scavenger hunts is such an easy example, right? That, mm. that you could do a scavenger hunt that, that passes my test. Um, and in fact, my fraternity, I, I was a member of Alpha Gamma Rho at the University of Tennessee and, and my new member class in the fall of 1997, we did a scavenger hunt. And, and I assume that this was something that came from the university's orientation leaders because my new member educator had been an OL and we did the scavenger hunt that was all about learning the history and the important landmarks of the university. So certain statues and buildings and traditions. And so we were divided into little teams and we started at the house. We got our first clue. We would figure out what it is. We would go to the, you know, the torchbearer statue and there's a brother there and Hey, here's the torchbearer and this is the creed and this is why it's important. And here's your next clue. And so there were like a dozen things took us a couple hours to do. We did it, you know, late Friday afternoon into the early evening subject that to the test is learning the history and the important landmarks of the university a group relevant objective that we could all agree is is a noble fine thing to do sure I, I no one has any problem with that there was nothing dangerous about that activity we weren't drinking and driving we weren't we were just walking around campus there was nothing degrading we didn't get yelled at it wasn't excessive we, we, you know we weren't driving all over you know late into the night and early into the morning and there was nothing illegal about it, right? We weren't breaking into buildings or stealing things. You could create a scavenger hunt that violates all four of those provisions, but our scavenger hunt didn't. And so we get lazy and we say, okay, scavenger hunts are against the rules where in fact you could put together a scavenger hunt that by anyone's objective measure would not constitute hazing. Yes, yes. And and I I, I think that we're we're branching out beyond the the definition to you know what are the the questions to ask about uh, you know the the appropriateness of particular induction activities and and their ultimate worth and and value and acceptability right right where whereas my definition is really focused on hazing yes no <laughs> is it hazing. <laughs> Yes. Rather than, uh, because just because something isn't hazing doesn't mean it's a great idea. Doesn't mean Uh, it's something you should be spending time on, right? If if you can't articulate a point or purpose for this activity, then why would you do it? Maybe it's hazing, maybe it's not. Yeah. So there's a, there's a practical extension of your definition that I think is really helpful. Uh, And for folks who are working on college campuses who, who are doing this work, um, I definitely recommend that you go to Aldo's website, which is just aldochimino.com and, and find that paper, uh, that gets into the definition of hazing, because I think it's incredibly helpful, uh, for, for administrators and folks who are in charge of implementing and developing policy to really understand why I think Aldo's definition is better than, than a lot of the definitions that are out there. So I want to get to your I want to get to your controversial ideas. All, all the stuff that we've talked about so far <laughs> is pretty 
pretty mundane, but before we do, let's take a, a quick pause for a commercial break. So since we're talking to Aldo about hazing, it makes sense to talk a little bit about some of the research that we do with our clients at Dyad Strategies related to hazing. And when I talk to our clients, both at the organizational level and the national level, the thing that I hear from them that resonates the most is how much value they see in the measures that we provide them related to hazing, in particular, our hazing motivation scale and our hazing tolerance scale. Here's our chief research officer, Dr. Josh Schutz, to tell you a little bit more about why we feel those scales are some of the best research that we do at Dyad Strategies. I think back to like my days as a Greek advisor, and when you were meeting with the new member educator, you're meeting with the president, those are fair questions that you would ask folks from the start, right? Like, so what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, I, I think back to every time in my career that I had to have a conversation with chapter leaders around allegations of malfeasance in the new member program. And you always would begin with conversations about like, so what is your goal here? Like, what are you fundamentally trying to accomplish? Because the thought was, well, maybe we find out where it broke down. Maybe there's a better way to do it. But it, it, it always stemmed back to what was the purpose, right? What was the goal? And that's, and that's why I think you're right. That scale is so beautifully designed because it asks that question, right? I mean, that's fundamentally what it's trying to get at is what that purpose is. Uh, and then we know that what it connects to positively and negatively. I think along those same lines, the, the hazing tolerance measure, um, you know, that you built, like it, it's beautiful in the respect that we never ask a student, did you get hazed? Yes or no. Right. Like that's because we all know that. I mean, nobody's going to say yes or no. Most students at that age, let me say that. Like if you asked me now, as a as a professional out in the real world about my experiences, I'm probably going to be a little more forthcoming because I've had the sense of like life, right? And perspective and things we could go back and do differently. But in the moment, people experiencing fraternity sorority in the moment, if you were to ask them, did you get hazed? I mean, nobody's going to admit to that, right? So I think the beauty of a measure like that is to simply say, like this, like that measure does, we're going to present you a list of of activities that if you were if you were required to do this hypothetically in a new member education program say the one that you went through if hypothetically any of these things happened at what point would you quit knowing that the list is mostly arranged in a least egregious to most egregious or as you might have said before um, or at other times kind of maybe hazing to definitely hazing depending on how you want to look at it um, you know we can a reflect back on our own experiences of what we went through as a judge of where I would stop. Right. If I say, well, I know that I had to go through this and this and this. So if you asked me what I quit, if I did them, the answer is no, I wouldn't quit. Right. Because I'm clearly a member. So I, I, I persisted, but would I, would I do these other things? Maybe not. And so that might inform how I answer it, but it still never gets at directly. Did, did you do it? Right. And I think that that's an important thing because if you want people to reliably answer it and reflect their attitude, you've got to give them a little bit of an out, right? There's got to be a little bit of a space of like, we're not claiming that you did any of this, but just, you know, how much would you put up with? 
The hazing motivation scale and the hazing tolerance scale are included in both our campus and our organizational assessments. To find out more about the research that we do and how it can help you and your work as a campus advisor or a headquarters professional, visit us online at www.diadstrategies.com. And now, back to more of our conversation with Aldo Chimino. All right, we're back with Aldo. So, Aldo, your most recent publication is uh, very critical of what you call Hazing's quote-unquote prohibition movement. Uh, and you have advanced a fairly controversial idea about how we should be addressing hazing instead of prohibiting it. So talk to us about that idea. All right. Uh, so for decades now, we've had uh, an anti-hazing movement. And uh, the existence of this movement is understandable. And the anger... Uh, at what we've seen happen at the extremes of hazing is also justifiable. You know, people have died, people have been seriously injured. Um, hazing is not a joke. Uh, and as, as part of this anti-hazing movement over many years, uh, there have been uh, founded anti-hazing organizations, anti-hazing books, anti-hazing documentaries, we have anti-hazing laws in most U.S. states, uh, anti-hazing programs at universities, you know, every major Greek letter organization, you know, stands against hazing, at least officially. Um, and uh, all of this has been going on for a very long time. Now, one of the things about all of these efforts is that uh, they are motivated by a, a paradigm, we, we might call it. And I, I refer to it as the moralize and suppress paradigm. So this is a paradigm with two sets of critical assumptions. And the first set of assumptions is that hazing is immoral and dangerous. That is, performing hazing is a kind of moral wrong, and it, it presents an unconscionable risk to hazies categorically. Uh, and the second set of assumptions is that hazing prohibition is both possible and probable. That is, that we can convince uh, significant portions of relevant populations that uh, hazing is immoral and dangerous, and if this persuasion is combined with some kind of commensurate uh, legal and extra-legal punishment, hazing is going to be substantially reduced or eliminated. Now, of course, with respect to Greek letter societies and a number of other uh, student groups especially, this has very much not happened, uh, and, and that has resulted, I think, in some uh, despondent reactions from anti-hazing advocates. And in this paper, you know, I, I quote Hank Neuer as basically saying that, uh, you know, it seems like everything has been tried, um, but still hazing continues. Now, my reading of the uh, relevant academic and popular literature on hazing is that despite the ostensible failure of this paradigm, this, uh, this broad prohibition movement to, to moralize and suppress hazing, uh, there's just very little sustained pushback or strong questioning of any of those underlying assumptions that I, that I made. So you, you can find you know, occasional brief pushback in some you know, published work, 
um, but it's often heavily caveated and uh, uh, it's, it's sort of buried in uh, things that are not well cited. Um, and so what I realized is that I both needed and wanted to write a substantial rejoinder to the dominant paradigm. That is, um, I have come to believe that uh, the moralize and suppress paradigm is bankrupt. That is, we're, we're not getting results from it, uh, and, and it's time to seriously investigate alternatives. And in particular, you know, more... Uh, intense and systemic harm reduction alternatives. So what I propose in this paper is, uh, let's say an alternative paradigm, embrace and reform. So in contrast to moralize and suppress, embrace and reform basically assumes that hazing is not categorically immoral and dangerous. That is in the right circumstances with informed consent. There are some things that we currently categorize as hazing that are probably acceptable and can be done safely. Uh, and second, uh, while that while hazing prohibition might be possible if we had enough resources, enough time, enough enforcement, it's not probable. That is, we're probably not going to accomplish this in the way that we want to accomplish this. And my evidence for that is recent history. Um, and third, that hazers are probably going to be more willing to accept uh, safety modifications of hazing ordeals than the outright prohibition and suppression of hazing. So with these assumptions, uh, in my paper, I propose a number of hazing activities that can uh, potentially be performed safely, like calisthenics, for example. Uh, and I describe how we might go about allowing them in fraternities and sororities, that is, in the kind of safety measures we would want uh, to take to help ensure that they're done safely. Like for example, uh, mandating uh, first aid training by the Red Cross for the entire chapter, things along those uh, lines. Now, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a very controversial take and, and I, I can't do all of it justice in, in the context of a, of a podcast. So if, if you're listening to this and thinking that sounds crazy, uh, I encourage you to read the whole paper, which is freely available on my website, uh, which, which may answer a lot of questions that you have. Anytime I've talked to folks about this idea, Aldo, it's, uh, it's, it will never fly, right? Like there's no way that our lawyers, there's no way that our insurance companies, there's no way that we can allow certain types of hazing. But if you, if you read the paper, it's, it's fascinating in that you really are writing this from a harm reduction standpoint. The, the, the basic concept that if we allow certain very low level, non-dangerous types of hazing and, and, and that students who are participating in that are consenting to it, they know and are signing off and saying, I allow myself to participate in calisthenics and cleaning and errand running and things that that would normally be considered hazing but aren't necessarily dangerous and that if we can monitor and regulate those sorts of things in a safe space that we can basically prevent or at least limit the likelihood that a group would feel the need to engage in really harmful and potentially dangerous hazing is, is that the basic idea 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I I don't know that I would quite endorse saying it's all super low level. Like it's some of it's fairly in, intense. You know, my my model organizations is are uh, sort of a combination between like a a championship athletic team and uh, components of military basic training. But the the point being that uh, both of these are are things that uh, college age students uh, regularly participate in safely. Uh, so, so we know that they, they can be done safely. Um, and, and we believe as a society that uh, legal adults can consent to these things in the right circumstances. Um, so what we need then is, is a will to, to make something like this happen. Now, um, my paper is focused on changing hearts and minds. Like it's, it's very much like a, I'm going to go through, you know, all the possible reasons why you might object to this. I'm going to talk about, <laughs> I'm going to talk about uh, uh, all the, the resistance to this idea. Like it's, it's step one. And, and what it's proposing is that we go about, pilot testing my idea, not just blindly implementing it. And as a researcher, that's, that's really what I find so fascinating about your, your suggestion. As you stated, we don't really know what works. Uh, there's very little empirical data out there. And when I say very little, I mean practically none in terms of what actually works to limit or prevent hazing activities or, to use your phrase, changing hearts and minds uh, about hazing. And so uh, if we're going to throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks, then this seems like something we ought to pilot and measure. Can, can we get a group that's willing to, in a very controlled environment, allow some of this? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of legal questions and, and other folks that would have to be brought into that conversation. But but just yeah. from a research standpoint, it seems to me that this might be something that we should try and measure and see if it works. Yeah, and I, I hope that, um, that I can uh, convince enough important people that this should be you know, one course of, of action that, that we pursue and, and investigate uh, in, a, in a systematic and controlled fashion. Uh, I, I am, how do I put this? So the, the prohibition movement has, as I stated at the, the beginning, uh, you know, been uh, uh, morally justified in its objections to, to much of, of the negligence and abuse that has occurred uh, because of hazing. But, but I think that its desire to stamp out hazing has also led to sort of logical impossibilities. Uh, like we, we have anti-hazing laws in states that make it literally impossible for uh, legal adults that happen to be students uh, to mutually consent to uh, a kind of severe initiation. Uh, it doesn't matter whether there's no coercion, it doesn't matter whether there's no alcohol, it doesn't matter whether it's safe, we just say that that's, that's impossible. Now clearly that is not impossible. 
Like, you know, legal adults can mutually consent to all kinds of things. Uh, and I, I, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me that this is not so. You know, legal adults can consent to all kinds of, you know, bizarre, kinky sex with one another uh, that, that, many, <laughs> that, that many of us might object to and don't want to watch or think about. That right. might be considered hazing by some university policy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and we, you know, as a society, we have decided that so long as that consent is legitimate, it's fine. It's their business, right? But, but for some reason, uh, when it comes to hazing, we have decided um, not that we should have more, more stringent uh, uh, standards for, for consent, which I, I think is fine, um, but that it's just impossible. Like you just cannot consent. Like they, they, like we need to draw the hardest line possible because and, there's a power differential, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I just think we we have to we have to recognize that no consent is possible. We just have to create the circumstances for it. And if we can strike the right balance and do that the right way, might we be able to really cut back on the dangerous hazing that, that takes place? I think it's a fascinating concept and whether you agree or disagree with Aldo's idea, I think it's a valuable contribution to the conversation that we need to continue to be having about this. So Aldo, what's, what's the next logical place for your research to go? What, as you think about the questions that you want to answer uh, as it comes to what we know, what we understand, uh, what's next? Where does the research need to go from here? Oh man, every and all directions. We <laughs> 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 have so much ground to cover. Uh, well, um, you know, obviously we need to, uh, continue work or I need to continue work at, at least on, uh, automatic accrual theory on the, the, the basic work that I'm doing and, um, you know, testing that in other populations and uh, trying to get, you know, large, more large-scale tests of the, those ideas, uh, especially in, in real-world uh, groups like fraternities and sororities. And uh, I think that uh, I want to see more work on uh, workplace hazing. So I'm, I, I am working with a, a couple other researchers right now on, uh, on workplace hazing stuff. So stuff outside of fraternities, sororities, athletic teams. Uh, so more traditional, you know, white and blue collar jobs. Um, and uh, there are, I, I really want to also just start addressing the potential effect or non-effect of hazing on group solidarity, just because uh, it, it keeps coming up um, in all kinds of contexts, like everyone's talking about this. And so I, I feel like we need more research on this question. Uh, we have you know, some studies that try to address whether hazing creates group solidarity and there's arrows pointing in all directions. Um, and it, it may critically depend on, well, what kind of hazing was being done and how long was it and how was it measured? Like there's, there's so many sub questions that we need to answer. And uh, it's the whole group cohesion and group bonding thing comes up so often um, that I, I feel like we need stronger data there desperately to have and reasonable it, it, conversations. And to really tease out, and I, I think this is where, you know, another place where our research overlaps with yours and that 
we've always used this concept solidarity, you know, and that's a, that's a very Durkheimian, very sociological term and concept. When we think about the group dynamics today, what we've seen is that there's, there's a sense of solidarity that we're, you know, I've got your back. I'm there for you if you need me. But then more connected to organizational commitment is the sense of belonging, right? Which, which isn't really something that Durkheim talked about. It doesn't really show up in the, the historical literature related to hazing. It's a relatively new concept, but it's this idea of I matter. People care about me. I feel valued. It's, it's not just the I've got your back, you've got mine. It's uh, people here really care about me. And, hmm. and what we see is that that drives organizational commitment even more than solidarity does. Solidarity certainly drives it, but belonging drives it more. Uh, and, and hazing oftentimes, as you know, works against creating a sense of belonging. In fact, it sometimes works to the opposite end of well, you, you don't quite belong yet, right? And so I, I think there's a new way of thinking about what group bonding looks like through a lens of more than just this notion of solidarity, which, which has been talked about, yeah, since, since, since the days of Durkheim. Yeah. And, and I, I think that uh, part of what you're, you're getting at is the, the constructs that, that we are measuring. Right. I, I mean, I could argue that, you know, a sense of belonging is a subcomponent of solidarity, right? Um, there's, you can measure solidarity as, you know, group liking, you can measure it as uh, how much you like each individual member in some as, as in individuals, you, you can measure it separately as like how coordinated you are, how well you work together, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are all sorts of subcomponents of this and you can further, you know, partial that out into, well, how do you feel about your pledge class versus how do you feel about other pledge classes versus how do you feel about your chapter? You know, <laughs> there's multiple there's, levels of solidarity yeah. <laughs> within any group, right? Yeah. It, it's, there's kind of a combinatorial explosion of, of legitimate ways to measure uh, solidarity as, as a potential outcome of, of any in, induction activity. And, and my head kind of explodes when I try to think about, uh, legitimately answering these questions. And also there's, there's potentially, you know, a time limited component to it. Like I, you know, hazing might bond you for life, but more likely if it does have a, a, a hazing, like a solidarity effect, uh, it might, you know, describe a curve that degrades really quickly over, over time. Uh, we don't know. And um, we have lots of anthropological anecdotes from lots of different societies, which suggest that, that people report feeling, you know, solidarity with those individuals that they, they went through some severe initiation with. Um, and we have plenty of, uh, you know, similar anecdotes with uh, fraternities. Um, so people believe that there's something there. There may well be something there. Uh, we just have to capture and measure it accurately and be able to compare it to other things. Uh, you know, like, all right, well, there, there's the, the question of does hazing generate group bonding relative to zero where zero is no bonding. And then there's, how does it compare to all these other things that we think do establish group bonding, like in terms of its total effect size and does it interact with things anyway, we're already, you know, exploding into yet more possibilities. Basically, we desperately need research on this, right? So anyone who's out there listening, 
and you're thinking about this, uh, come join our small but mighty band of, of folks who are interested in, in researching this topic. Aldo, you and I could talk for hours and we have before and uh, I will definitely be having you back on again, but, but thanks so much for coming on the pod tonight. Thanks for having me. So whenever I talk to my colleagues, either fraternity execs or campus administrators about Aldo's ideas around consent-based hazing, the answer is almost always the same. It will never happen. There are so many concerns around insurance and legal liability that if a national fraternity allowed some types of hazing, that it would be a legal nightmare, or that the public outcry would be so severe that the fraternity would get crushed in the court of public opinion. I wanted to talk to someone who could help put Aldo's suggestions into a legal context. So I called up my friend Dave Westall. Dave is a legend in the fraternity and sorority industry. He's an attorney by training, but spent years as executive director of his own fraternity, Theta Chi. He's now the principal of Limberlost Consulting, a firm that works with fraternities and sororities, as well as college campuses, on issues related to risk management and harm prevention. I literally can't think of anyone better to give us a legal perspective on some of Aldo's ideas than Dave, and I'm really excited to welcome him to the podcast. All right, Dave, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Man, I'm great. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. I, I, I'm excited to chat with you. You're someone I, I have a lot of respect for, and, and you know, I, I describe you as kind of a legend in the fraternity industry. You've been doing this work a long time. You've read Aldo's article, uh, Embrace and Reform. And, and so I, I've, I've talked to Aldo. We had a lengthy conversation uh, about his research and certainly talked a lot about his ideas around uh, Embrace and Reform. Uh, what is just your reaction to, to what Aldo is suggesting? I like the fact that he's looking at this in a pragmatic way. I think we have, we still have too many people who think you can get up in front of an undergraduate audience, admonish them, waving your finger at them and say, <laughs> all right, let's stop hazing now. Yeah. And, uh, and that they're going to go away and stop because they're not. This is, uh, as you have pointed out in Dr. Madden, among other people, uh, in research far beyond what I've done. Mine is all anecdotal, but I know that in talking with undergraduate men, membership reviews and investigations, they really don't, <laughs> they don't pay much attention to that. It's, oh yeah, somebody came in and told us not to do it, but they, they continue with it. And I think Aldo is, is hitting a key point that says, if we consider a different approach, at least we get out of the manner of thinking that we're actually making progress with trying to uh, trying to dis discipline it out of existence, prohibit it, or say you can't do this anymore because we say. I think it has to go deeper than that. Moralize and suppress is is how he would describe that. That that moralizing yeah. and suppressing has it hasn't really been working. And I, I think the thing that's fascinating about Aldo's work, you know, the context around his argument is that hazing is a, an adaptive evolutionary response. You know, he studied this as an anthropologist uh, and, and cultures independently of one another have developed these rites of passage, right? To prevent newcomers from coming in and, and free riding And if you can begin with that understanding that this is something that's very much part of our DNA that comes from our tribal roots that that weeding out newcomers is something that we're programmed to do as people 
then it makes his arguments, I think, even more compelling, right? Because in, instead of the wagging the finger and the moralizing, you can acknowledge that, hey, this is, this is actually a normal, natural thing that most societies do with regards to how they manage newcomers into their groups. Uh, and, and so I think his research is just so uh, helpful in, in helping us think about hazing through that different lens. He's really the only anthropologist who specializes in the study of, of hazing. Mm-hmm. Aldo suggests that the prohibition era, the, the more lies and suppress, the, the wag your finger uh, era has, has been a failure. Dave, you and I are both in the trenches of this. Do you agree with him? Do, do you think the, the last 30 years have been a failure or how, how would you, how would you characterize that? I'm not going to call it a failure because I think it's impossible to measure how many lives all of us working together have saved. That includes the folks, hazingprevention.org, all the presentations, Eileen, dating back to Eileen Stevens, who hit the road long before others did and and talked. She would uh, pick up that undergraduate audience in her hands and hold them to her mother's uh, her, 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 her mother's uh, heart, if you will, and mm-hmm. say, look, what you're doing is wrong. And I, I could see the changes and, and experience some of those in my own fraternity when she spoke. But so we've, we've, that's part of it. And it's, I don't think we can say it's failed. On the other hand, have we successfully changed the course and the outcome of hazing? And I agree with you, Analdo. No, we have not. We continue to battle. It's wash, rinse, repeat. And uh, we, we just keep what's, what stood out to me. Uh, and you asked from my historical perspective is how quickly chapters fall into campus culture. Now, mm-hmm. when I started as a CEO, if you installed a chapter, all things being equal, those guys would be bright and shiny for two generations, about five years. Mm-hmm. And they would be the best chapter in that area. They would do great things. They would show up. They would take pride in being good fraternity men. And it was only after the second gen that they'd start to, you could see the erosion slowly but surely mm-hmm. to campus culture and then in, 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 then to hazing. These days, it happens within a semester or two. And it's incredible how quickly the, uh, you know, the, the ink isn't dry on the charter and they're hazing. <laughs> and yeah. you say, what, what just happened here? We just installed you guys with all these ideals and values. Yeah, but we want to be tier one and this is how you, you justify it. So it's, uh, it's really, as that's one of those changes that, that as you have pointed out, is, is significant. And we're that, battling. Yeah, we measure, and, and it's, it's strongly correlated with hazing, this idea of social status importance, how much they care about where they are in that tier system. And, and as I describe it to our clients, particularly as you're tracking it with those, with those new groups, it's the canary in the coal mine, right? When you see that start to go up, when you see them start to look around and start caring a lot more about where they are in that social pecking order, that's the intervention point. That's where you step in and start to, to address things and make some changes because that's going to be the precursor to, to the hazing, to the risk management issues, and all the other things that are that are going to start happening, and 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 yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear you say that 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 we don't have a long enough data set to to show any sort of a change over a, you know the five or six years now that we have data, but I'm fascinated by yeah if, if we're able to extend this out over 
10, 15, 20 years, do groups continue to care more and more about that social prestige? And Alexander Robbins in her research and in her book talks about that a lot. I'll be having her on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks and, and excited to, to tease that idea out with her a little bit mm -hmm. more because that certainly drives a lot of problematic behavior. Oh, yeah. So I want to I want to walk through the legal liability questions here. Uh, because uh, every time that Aldo's ideas come up and I'm talking to a fraternity exec or a, you know, a, a campus administrator, they're like, oh, there's no way, right? There's, there's no way this would fly. So, so basically Aldo's proposal is a fraternity new member joins a group and, and, and a, on bid day, you know, he signs his bid card and then he's given a waiver. And the waiver basically says, you know, I understand that there's going to be some personal servitude, some cleaning, you know, maybe some embarrassing stuff, maybe some, maybe some lineups, maybe I'll get yelled at a little bit. Um, and I consent to participate in those activities. And uh, also, I agree that I will not participate in any activity that involves physical abuse, alcohol consumption, et cetera. And if I violate the agreement and decide to participate in any of those activities, I'm releasing the national fraternity of any liability associated with my participation in those prohibited activities. So I want to think about you're, you're a lawyer. You understand how insurance works. You understand the liability of these strictly from that legal liability and insurance standpoint would that sort of a thing fly a and b do you think that's potentially an effective strategy to limit the dangerous sort of hazing that that takes place in in these organizations but aldo argues that it that it might okay well number one uh, it, this would be a, if i was a bar examiner for a particular state this would be an outstanding question for the bar exam because it involves various aspects of the law I believe and it's subject to anything. Number one, not all states have laws against hazing. And those that do, they vary in intensity. Uh, some of the better written ones are the ones that have been brought about by efforts by parents, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, mm -hmm. California. But uh, and also very heavily populated states with a lot of schools. The fact remains, uh, can, what we're talking about here to boil it down is can an individual sign a, and I, I won't use the term waiver, I'll say can they sign an agreement with a fraternity chapter in which they agree to be hazed and the chapter agrees to use certain aspects of hazing and as long as those two are met and there's a clear cogent agreement agreed to ahead of time then can will that stand judicial scrutiny? I'm going to argue, yeah, I think it would, with a number of conditions. And I'm going to, since you give me the opportunity here, I'm going to push forward and say, I don't think we should try to limit it by uh, certain hazing aspects. In other words, uh, the personal servitude and perhaps a few physical exercises. I'm saying we should go, as they say in the Northeast, full boat, <laughs> and we should say a guy comes to recruitment or rush. He joins that day. He gets a contract and the contract says, I agree to do certain things as a pledge. And the chapter is going to do these things in order to prepare me for brotherhood. 
And there's a very specific time. Uh, it starts at 12.01 a.m. using insurance language the following morning. And it ends, let's say, eight weeks. And during that time, the chapter may utilize any of these practices, but they have to specify the practices because that is that is important to a contract. Now, let yeah. me share with your audience, my final grade in contracts one in law school was why I became an assistant prosecutor. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, you're certainly not listening to someone who considers himself well-versed, but I know enough about contract law to know you have to have an offer, you have to have acceptance, and you have to have consideration. You got all three here. But the deal is, um, the, in, my, in my scenario, I'd go a step further than Aldo and say, we are going to be so specific it hurts. I mean, we're going to say, for example, we may impose physical punishment of 27 push-ups per day on a pledge. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean we're going to have to, but it does mean that we, we will, we have that opportunity mm -hmm. and we'll be keeping track and you, the pledge will be keeping track. We may keep you up 12 hours. We may send you out on the proverbial long walk uh, during week three. You should prepare that day for, a, uh, we're going to drop you off 17 miles from campus without phones, and we're going to make you wear your hoodies backwards so you don't know where you are, and then you're going to have to find your way back to campus, and you're expected to be back in the chapter house by 6 a.m. Have a good time. But all those things are set forth in significant detail, and not only does the pledge sign, but his parents sign, and mm -hmm. he has to specifically exclude the national organization, and the university. Uh, for those who say, well, gee, Dave, what about state law? I say, hey, if the fraternity hosts a boxing tournament or maybe even a, a full contact tournament, what's the difference between assault and battery, assault being the present ability to carry out the threat, and battery, where you actually uh, unwarranted touching or unwanted touching, and uh, that tournament? The, turn, the deal is you both agree you're not going to hold each other legally accountable. But if I'm in that tournament and I pick up a chair and bash you over the head as a participant, I've just gone, accelerated up from, from misdemeanor to felony, and therefore I have violated the law. Yes, I, I can be prosecuted. In this case, we've set it all, all forth. The practical side is this, as a nine-year assistant prosecutor, why in the name of God would I want to prosecute a case where both parties have agreed this is acceptable behavior? I'm going to say, no, I, we're not going to waste the time of the state prosecuting the fraternity. And as long as the national fraternity is protected and this is locked down, um, you know, you can't sue the national fraternity under any circumstances because this is not their idea of how you're going to join. But if you want to be hazed, and your parents agree, and I, I suspect you, you and I would not be surprised with how many parents would agree to these things mm -hmm. because they somehow think this is going to help their son. It's like sending him <laughs> away to, to uh, basic training in the military. Oh, it'll help him grow up. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you, if you think you failed as a parent, but he, we're going to do your job for you, all right, <laughs> then we're going to do that. I'm going to and, do in eight weeks that which you failed to do in 18 years. <laughs> yes, right out of Lee, F. Lee Ermey. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the fact is, um, you, you know, we're going to, if you sign off on that, parents, you agree to release the national organization and the university from any potential liability. We're going to, we're going to build that into the agreement. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But it's informed it. consent. To your point, it's it's specific. These are all the very specific things that we are going to do during this new member process. This is these are the guidelines. These are the boundaries. But everything that we do is articulated there. We're telling you on the front end, and you're agreeing to willingly participate in those activities. Exactly, exactly right. I think I ran this by, I was on a campus within the past year, I'll say, and you had been there and you actually did us, your survey results came back and you said that this particular university, uh, that fraternities had a higher tolerance for hazing than some mm. other schools. And I ran this one up the flagpole, as they say, and see who saluted with a group of, of all younger members, I'll put it that way. Not yes. necessarily leaders, but just younger members. And they were understandably reticent when I explained it. And I said, hey, look, you guys get to do whatever you want. You can haze. You could do it openly. You don't have to worry. Uh, and the guys agree. They will do the push-ups and the Uber driving and the janitor service and show up at, at 7 a.m. to clean up the house and all that other stuff. And they were chewing on that. And then the hands started to go up. And I think they didn't come out and say it because they were using code words you and I recognize. Well, uh, code words such as respect and uh, uh, getting in and, uh, you know, we're not just going to open the door. I said, no, no, you are not. You, you get to do all these things. You are telling them, though, you're giving away two principal weapons in the hazers arsenal. The first one is the voluntary optional piece because you can no longer use that and say, mm-hmm. Uh, now you have to say, this is what's going to, you know, you as the pledge are expected to do these things and we can't cloak them in voluntary optional. The other one bites even deeper. And that is obviously if you have an agreement, there's going to be an end. So right. you are communicating, this is how long you have. And at the end of this time, provided you do what's expected, you are going to be brotherized. <laughs> You're in man. And that's what's, I think that was what was killing, so to speak, metaphorically, some of the younger members I was speaking to because they weren't, they just couldn't imagine saying to a pledge, you're, you're in, you know, you, because they want to dangle that in front of them and say all the way to the fake ending and, and all the other things they do to jack people around. Now they can't do that. The guy, the guy knows if he does what he's supposed to, he's going to get in. And I think that's what scares them more than any is losing that ability to inject that, that fear of you're not going to make it in, into their brains. Yeah. Long Interesting. Answer, but I apologize. Ruins the, the element of surprise. Yes. Uh, because you, you, you lay it all out. Have you talked to folks on the insurance side of the industry? Because, you know, it's, it's, you know, well-documented, you know, Caitlin Flanagan's article a few years ago, really, delved into the particulars of, of, of the insurance companies and, and really how much clout they have in terms of decision-making, particularly at the national level. Uh, would this fly with the, with the insurance guys and gals? I think if I was work for the insurance carrier, I'd say, I'd say we're okay with this as long as you completely absolve us from any activity because you're contracting to conduct uh, violations of the criminal law. We're not going to represent you in that. But as long as you understand that, you're taking the chance and you can't come after us, we're okay. I think it actually, it would make their lives easier because instead of going in and having to investigate all these, if someone was injured doing push-ups or wall sits or whatever, 
and they tried to file a claim, you'd say, you know what? You signed away, man. You're done. Yep. So to me, it would be a, a now, of course, <laughs> the insurance people would probably say, oh my God. But um, I think it would make life easier for them and for the national organizations. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I, I think it's important. Like, I, I don't know that from someone who really studies hazing through the lens of the problems that it can cause, the, the issues that it can create in an organization, I think it's important that, that everyone who's listening understand. I, I certainly am not. And I don't think Dave is endorsing or saying all of a sudden hazing is a great idea. What we're suggesting, I think, extending Aldo's work is that if our if our goal is to limit the amount of harm that's done, to cut back on the dangerous hazing, to cut back on things that that are resulting in injury or death, that that you know, as, as Aldo would argue, controlling, regulating, uh, embracing, and reforming might be a better strategy than the strategy of of moralize and suppress, and we can continue to educate students about the problems of hazing and helping them try to find a better way while at the same time regulating the behavior in a way that makes the likelihood of something bad happening less and, and limits the liability for uh, national organizations and, and universities. Dave, anything you would add to that before we wrap up? Yes, I was, I, I became involved with fraternities at the, uh, as an alum uh, less than a year after I graduated from Michigan State. I became advisor of the IFC there. I have opposed hazing since that time. I have spoken. Uh, my uh, my session and trade, if you will, was hazing on trial. I've done it over 2,700 times. It's too intense for this generation, but for all the others, it was uh, that was what I did. And I have argued hazing with, with thousands and thousands of young and not so young men and women and uh, from all, all different cultures and groups. And what I know is this, uh, it is inherently wrong, it divides your chapter, and it results in exactly the opposite of what its proponents say. On the other hand, if, if someone wants to be hazed, and you read this all the time, uh, despite what some folks may think, if you read the comments at the end of an article about a hazing death, there are a substantial number of people who say in their comments, you know, he could have walked away. Yeah. And although I, I disagree with the transfer of responsibility, I understand what they're saying. And some of those people are going to be serving on juries. So I say this, uh, if, if, uh, if you want to haze, this is a much cleaner way to separate all the parties. Now, I would be, as I'm sure you would be, fascinated to see how many young men and their parents would actually sign off on an agreement like this and say, yeah, I'm willing to do all these stupid, ridiculous things that have no purpose other than to expand the egos of the, of the uh, undergraduates. I think a second dynamic would be you'd see an immediate uh, 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 grouping in a fraternity chapter of those who are going to conduct the hazing down to say eight or nine guys, they would be the pledge development committee. They would have the responsibility and you might actually see some self enforcement from them because they don't want to be named in the lawsuit and they stand they're they're dead center in the, in the, in the, in the litigation, something goes wrong. They're going to be the ones held accountable. 
So uh, all those fascinating dynamics. But yeah, to, to support your point, I am in no way advocating for hate, but I think this is a fascinating exercise. And I would be interested to see if we could ever, if we could get it beyond that. And, and as a researcher, that's kind of where I am. It's like, if, if there's an idea out there that might work to limit some of the dangerous things that we see, should we study it? And, and so as a researcher, I'm always open to, let's give it a shot. You know, it, it seems in theory like it, it might work. Let's give it a shot. Let's, uh, and then let's measure it. Let's, let's see what sort of impact it has. So uh, it will be very interesting to see if anyone takes Aldo up uh, and, uh, and, and tries to maybe do some pilot work around this area. But Dave, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and uh, definitely we'll have you back on in the future as we continue some of these conversations. So, so thanks so much for joining us. My privilege. Thank you for inviting me, doctor. I went into this episode with mixed feelings about Aldo's ideas. I still have mixed feelings about Aldo's ideas. At the end of the day, I think we have to ask ourselves a simple question. What is the goal here? Are we trying to eradicate hazing? Aldo's research suggests that that isn't really possible, that hazing is in our DNA. The time, energy, and resources that would be required to erase human nature is really impossible to calculate. I don't think we will ever fully eradicate hazing. Or is the goal to prevent harmful hazing that results in injury or death? This goal seems more achievable. If we agree that the second goal, preventing harmful hazing, is really where we need to be focusing our time and energy, and we are willing to move forward with piloting and testing some of Aldo's ideas, then I think we have to ask ourselves a third question. How much little h hazing are we willing to tolerate in our efforts to keep big h hazing from happening? And can the field of fraternity and sorority professionals that have been moralizing hazing for decades come around and support a new approach? I don't know the answers to any of these questions, but my conversations with Aldo and Dave have brought me around to the idea that embrace and reform is something worthy of consideration and further study. Deep down in my heart, I'm a researcher, and I think Aldo's ideas are worthy of a deeper examination. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information about Dyad Strategies, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.